Hello, and welcome to Building Local Power. I'm Zach Fried. And I'm Stacey Mitchell. Today on the show, we have a discussion between Stacey and Professor Harry First of New York University Law School. Harry is both a professor of law and a co-director of NYU's Competition, Innovation, and Information Law Program. Professor First is the author of several books and essays on antitrust, including one in particular called Antitrust Democracy Deficit with co-author Spencer Weber-Waller. Stacy sat down with Professor First to talk about that essay and what can be done to make up for antitrust law's democratic deficit. Just starting, one thing that stood out to me was how candid uh, Harry First was about the need for democratic participation in this area of law. Yeah, he's really got, I think, an interesting analysis in that article, and we hear about it in the podcast, about how, you know, antitrust law has become more and more the domain of economists and this really highly technical expertise. And as it's gone in that direction, ordinary people have been more and more excluded, and the broader public purposes of antitrust law have been lost and kind of gone, you know, it's all gone behind closed doors. Another thing that stood out to me was how forthright Professor First was about the discussion of values and how it's impossible to, quote unquote, politicize antitrust law because you're taking into account value judgments when you make decisions about who gets what. Yeah, that was another another thread that also came up with our conversation with uh, Professor Senjukta Paul in our last podcast. Yeah, I think these two uh, episodes actually pair really well together. And you're right, that was a common thread in both of them. And, you know, one of the things I I learned a lot in this conversation with with some of the details of of history. And so one of the things uh, uh, Professor First talks about is how uh, Robert Bork, who we all know is the person who kind of upended antitrust law and uh, helped to really neutralize it, uh, or even turn it on its head. And Robert Bork very directly said, you know, antitrust is very political. You know, we in, in today's time, you know, when people argue for stronger antitrust or that uh, policies should incorporate a broader set of democratic values, the pushback from the establishment is often, well, you're just trying to make it political. And, you know, the, the smarter, more accurate thing to recognize is that it's already political. The question is, which values does it serve and whose values does it serve? One of the other things I thought uh, was kind of interesting as just a historical fact that came up in this conversation um, was that Harry First notes that in the 80s, when these huge monumental changes were being made to antitrust law, there was a lot of pushback from state attorneys general, both Democrats and Republicans. And he said, you know, part of it was because they were closer to people. They were actually on the ground dealing with the problems of monopoly power and how it affected their states and their communities. And so they had a different perspective than the people in D.C. Yeah, absolutely. That I was struck by that as well, because we it seems like we're finding ourselves in a similar moment where you have uh, bipartisan state AGs leading investigations into big tech platforms and in many ways pushing the federal agencies to uh, scrutinize those companies more. Without further ado, let's get to the conversation. Thanks, Stacey. Thanks, Zach. So, Professor Harry First, it's nice to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Nice to be talking. I uh, first ran across your work when I read an article that you wrote uh, several years ago called Antitrust Democracy Deficit, and you wrote this with uh, Spencer Weber Waller. Uh, What is antitrust democracy deficit? I'm tempted to say, well, you have to read the article to find out. 
But um, <laughs> what I'll say is <laughs> I'm glad you read the article. The basic idea that Spencer and I had was that um, antitrust had become very technical. Uh, and it had really since the mid-1970s, it had been a gradual, I want to say, hostile takeover by the economists. Um, <laughs> not quite hostile, but um, they wanted to move it away from uh, sort of a logic proposition that was based on um, the purposes of the antitrust laws to a much more narrow purpose, which could be um, attacked through economics, the use of economic theory. So over time, that developed quite a bit, and economists, uh, when asked, will um, develop models and think about these problems because competition problems are economic problems and are interesting. So antitrust had become very technical. Technical isn't bad in itself, but it has tended to remove antitrust from um, its values, um, and particularly values that can't quite be um, encompassed in just the word efficiency. So concern for economic power, for size, um, for um, the position of consumers as individuals, sort of sovereigns, uh, who are entitled to the benefits of a free enterprise system. So um, what, what our hope was, was sort of to move the, the needle back a little bit uh, mm -hmm. more towards the people. This sort of receding, the way this sort of antitrust has receded behind closed doors and become this purview of economists, of, of technocrats, it's had, it's had an effect that you noted, that you noted about the way that the law has changed not to have these broader civic values be, be part of it, but it instead has become very narrowly focused. Would you say that it's also affected how much people understand about antitrust and the degree to which ordinary people feel like they you know, know about this or have any say over it? Well, um, you have to say that people who are technically trained want to be sure that there's value to what they add. So, yes, um, the more technical it becomes, the more lay people are excluded sort of by, you know, by by nature. Now, I mean, law in some sense is that way. You know, lawyers are technically trained. And um, so that does tend to be a bit exclusionary. But um, as it became more technical, you're right. Um, it also uh, became more and more impenetrable by the regular people who were being affected by it. Mm hmm. I mean, I suppose that's one of the ways that that larger corporations can game the system. Right. I mean, they have a lot more power to influence economists, to hire economists, to f fund these expensive models that are done to show that a merger won't have a negative impact, for example, whereas, uh, you know, a set of uh, workers in that industry, for example, they don't have that kind of access. Yes, this is true. The, I mean, it's antitrust enforcement is focused on corporate behavior and should be particularly concerned with large corporations and particularly in merger situations. So, yes, they can afford to hire the best economists, best lawyers. It's always been a game of the government enforcers um, being outgunned um, and um, having to figure out ways to deal with that unequal power just simply between the government and um, the private parties they're trying to enforce it against. 
Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it really strikes me how much when I talk to people about issues of concentration and corporate power and corporate control, you know, people, people understand corporate control. They feel that in their lives. They see that in their communities. But when you turn to the word antitrust, even people who are, you know, uh, well-informed and engaged on a lot of policy issues who would feel very comfortable talking about Medicaid, uh, Medicare for all, for example, or any Green New Deal, you know, any policy that you might be able to name, when it comes to antitrust, they feel like, I don't know, I don't exactly know what that is. And maybe I'm not in a position to be able to talk about it. And that seems to be one of the consequences of this. Yes, yes. And so the professionals love that idea. But also, um, I've always thought that antitrust got branded with the wrong name. So huh. this, this is a historical um, feature of the 19th century, and it was about trust that you know, were the large corporations of the day. So it was antitrust. But who wants to have a field that's called you're against trust? It sounds wrong somehow. <laughs> so right. you, you already have to translate that. I mean, we'd have been better off if it was pro-competition. Uh, mm-hmm. And in many places in the world, it's called competition policy or competition law, which is, you know, and aff- more affirmative. So we, we sort of got stuck with bad branding from 1890. Right, right. What do you think about anti-monopoly? I like the word monopoly. Uh, there, there is a move. It's interesting that you mentioned that because uh, in some, you know, what you might call progressive circles or however they're trying to brand themselves, uh, the idea that it's an anti-monopoly law um, sounds closer in some ways to what the law is actually about. And in fact, if you in Japan, uh, the law is the anti-monopoly law, I mean, in mm. Japanese, uh, same in China. So um, where that's gotten them, I'm not sure. <laughs> Labels <laughs> don't determine everything, maybe. But um, but but that that label is coming back. It, the, the problem is antitrust deals with more than just monopoly. And so that's that's a good descriptor, but not a full one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So if, if we're going to set about to change this, and I mean, I think you've written that, you know, if we want to have more effective antitrust policy, if we want to have a chance to reform some of the things that have gone wrong, it's really only going to happen if we can have an engaged public, that there's got to be a popular support. And this is a political process of change. Um, so uh, what do we need to do to, to remedy this democracy deficit? Well, I think we're starting to see it now, actually, um, in what is in some ways to me um, an, an interesting and amazing moment for um, for antitrust. I'll use the old label, uh, which we haven't really seen since 1912, uh, when antitrust was a central political issue um, in, in uh, presidential politics. So... Um, I think in part because of the size of these major tech platforms, people have become concerned about the kinds of things that have always concerned antitrust, which is too much economic power in too few hands that affects a lot of people. And what's interesting is the politicians are picking this up. So to the extent that people feel it's an important political issue and express that through the political process in one way or another, whether it's supporting particular candidates or writing to a congressperson or, you know, Congress is investigating these issues. 
uh, writing to um, a state attorney general who's an elected official. It's some way trying to become involved um, politically in, uh, in supporting these kinds of investigations. If you were um, appointed in a new administration to run the antitrust division at the, at the Justice Department, are there things that the agencies, you know, we have these two agencies at the federal level, um, and, and I want to turn back to the attorney generals in a minute, but at the federal level, we've got the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission in charge of, of policing uh, uh, competition. And, um, are there things that the agencies should be doing to be more transparent? I'm not sure transparency is necessarily um, the key. In some ways, we have a fair degree of transparency today. Um, the question is, what are you being transparent about? Mm. I, I think there are things um, we have in some ways um, an activist, in some ways, I want to underline it's in some ways, activist enforcement agencies on the federal level. Um, they've been holding uh, hearings, Federal Trade Commission has held hearings around the country about competition issues. These are these are all to the good and in, se- in that sense, transparency things. But um, the important thing is to start reorienting uh, enforcement policy um, in a way that I think is more in line with the general purposes of um, competition law, of antitrust law, and of um, the statute dealing with mergers. So. There are lots of things um, that the enforcement agencies could do to move the, um, the enforcement closer to what it should be and away from this uh, completely technical view of antitrust. And frankly, some degree of timidity um, in, in taking on big cases. We'll have to see whether they're really going to take on some of these big cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I very much agree with that about uh, the need for the agencies to fundamentally reform how they're approaching uh, th- their job. I think what I'm struck by is things like when when Amazon bought Whole Foods, for example, that was, you know, approved. There was no, you know, there was only a very limited review. Um, there was no sort of fuller review done by the Federal Trade Commission. And there was no explanation of their decision. So we know nothing, as the public, we know nothing about what their thinking was, how they looked at that case and decided that it wasn't really worth looking at any more closely. You know, similarly, another example I was struck by was when the, um, uh, I think it was the Department of Justice, some, some documents were accidentally disclosed to the Wall Street Journal about Google and come to find out, you know, staff had done a lot of work and really felt that a case should have been brought a, a few years ago. And uh, the, the sort of higher ups didn't move forward with that. And that, you know, again, um, it seems to me that part of the, the problem here, I mean, clearly there are the choices and enforcement decisions that the agencies are making, but it's also like we have no view. All of this stuff is happening behind closed doors and without understanding the decision making it becomes hard to criticize it or to suggest ways it should have been different yeah um i I think those are very good points the um the google memorandum uh we we managed to get every other page (laughs) it makes for fun reading that way right (laughs) but i i someone's going to write the other side, you know, write the other half of the memo. What what was in those other pages? I don't know why they haven't done that. Maybe that would be a good TV series. Uh, but in any event, um, 
Yeah, I think transparency could help. There, it, it's not. It, it's a medium cure. There, for example, every case that the Justice Department settles, um, it it has to explain itself. It's a requirement, minimum requirement in the law. Since the last time we were concerned about uh, misuse of antitrust, frankly, during the Nixon administration, mm-hmm. um, and that's of some use, but somewhat limited use because those disclosures are always self-serving. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something, but um, doesn't necessarily get us um, completely far. Um, and and I think the agencies, to some extent, have realized that it might be helpful when they close a case to give some explanation for it. I guess what I would prefer is opening the case, uh-huh. <laughs> not closing it. Um, but, you know, not every case can be brought. And um, sometimes the law is not on your side, no matter what you Mm-hmm. Like and that may actually be uh, Amazon Whole Foods. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, in many of those cases, it's it's case law essentially. It's the courts uh, that have have created that situation, and, and one could argue, uh, perhaps have have strayed pretty far from Congress's intent with the laws. Um, you know, as you think about what is it going to take to to actually change enforcement and change, change policy, you know, does Congress need to step in and clarify what its intentions are? Can we, you know, it seems like a long road to get the courts to revisit things like predatory pricing, for example, you know, the process of getting courts to like relook at these issues and think about, uh, you know, sort of go through a, an evolution in their thinking is long and uncertain. Yes. Laws often a conservative proposition because a big idea of legal rules is you follow the old rules. So you should be a little reluctant to change them. And so that makes things inherently somewhat conservative. And then when you combine that with judges that approach the law conservatively, um, you don't get much change. We did get change in the 1970s. The Supreme mm-hmm. Court did change the way we look at any trust law. Um, so I think, and this was one of the points that Spencer and I made in, in that article that you mentioned, um, we've, we've sort of forgotten that Congress actually does legislate and has a role to play. And there are particular areas. One of them is the merger area where Congress could um, make changes that would um, stop some of the concentration that we've seen, which most people think is bad, but we didn't seem to be able to do much about it, or we didn't. There are bills pending in Congress um, to do that. And, uh, you know, I think that 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 really is one avenue that we've neglected over time. And then the judges, the judges then ought to do what they're supposed to do, which is they follow the law. And there's some interpretation they can do, but if the law makes a big change, they've got to go along, and, and they will. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Hello, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to Building Local Power. I wanted to ask if you might consider making a donation to support ILSR's work. We're a nonprofit organization, and we depend uh, quite a bit on donations from individuals to make our work happen. Uh, if you can kick in a few bucks, that would be great. You can donate to help support this podcast, but the podcast, of course, is only a small part of what we do. It's a kind of side hustle to our main work, which is that we uh, work with communities across 
across the country to help them build local power, take control over their broadband networks, their energy systems, rebuild independent local businesses. And of course, we knit all of that together with advocacy at the state and federal level to change the policies that uh, impact local economies and local communities. So in the last year, we've helped a lot of cities build publicly owned broadband networks and take power back from the broadband monopolies. We've helped cities like Birmingham and Tulsa uh, block the proliferation of dollar stores and dollar store saturation and put in place policies to support local grocers instead. Uh, We've helped cities think about how to reconfigure their energy systems and rebuild uh, local recycling and composting infrastructure to uh, both take power back from big waste and also to uh, protect the climate. Uh, So we're doing a lot of great work. You can read more about it on our website at ILSR.org. And if you'd be so kind as to click that donate button, we'd really appreciate it. Thanks. Okay, we're back. Some people argue, uh, some people who, who want to keep the status quo as we have it now have argued that this kind of technocratic, if you will, approach to antitrust is somehow neutral, apolitical, and that the people who are saying that we need reform, that we need to bring in values of equity, of, of citizenship, of democracy back into antitrust, that that's somehow politicizing antitrust. How do you respond to that? A little self-awareness would be in order. I, you know, I, I can't believe that they really think any legal system is completely apolitical. There are apolitical aspects of it, you know, and there should be. I mean, that's what a rule of law is. But you know, the the sort of the I don't want to say founder, but the the source that a lot of people look back to for this change is Robert Bork and the book that he wrote, The Antitrust Paradox. What's really interesting to me in that book is that he said antitrust is inherently political. He was very clear about it. And 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 he, he didn't think that was a bad thing. It wasn't just economics. There were political values that he had uh, about, you know, the role of government and the role of markets. And he recognizes these were political issues and they're they're up for debate and change and movement in in every generation. Um, which is, you know, why my students say, haven't we settled this thing? We passed the law in 1890. Don't we know exactly <laughs> what it is? Why are we still arguing about these things? And I say, because they're always contestable. And um, and I don't think if you really push anyone, they would say, oh, this is completely apolitical. Um, they would say, no, there's it's the Casablanca mo- moment. Oh, there's politics going on. You know. Mm-hmm. So you uh, talked a little bit earlier about uh, attorneys general and you know, what is the role of, of states? We often focus on the federal government and antitrust, but the states actually have a pretty significant role. Yes, it, it's it's interesting historically. So um, state antitrust law, actually, there were a few state antitrust laws that preceded the Sherman Act, the basic antitrust law in 1890. So um, as was the case at that point in our economy where things weren't nationalized, um, the states were to some extent out ahead in regulating the railroads. The states did it before the federal government did, and some degree of antitrust law to to control you know, major corporations and deal with the changes in the economy that were going on. So states were very much involved 
um, and continued to be for a while. And then it sort of slacked off. There wasn't, you know, there weren't the resources devoted either on the federal or the state level. But the states do have the authority to enforce federal law under federal precedent. So state enforcers can go into federal courts using the Sherman Act and enforce it in a way just about the same way that the Department of Justice or Federal Trade Commission can. And, you know, they have um, at various times played a backup role to the federal government, a prod to the federal government enforcers, or a disagree disagreeing with the federal government enforcers and saying, well, if you won't bring the case, we will. Um, and that's been a very important aspect uh, of antitrust enforcement. And it is, once again, actually. Mm-hmm. Talk, yeah, talk a little bit about when states have led the way, when they've pushed on an issue that the feds were reluctant to, and, and how you're seeing that today. You know, the, time, the last time really this happened in a major way was during the Reagan administration um, in the 1980s when um, the Justice Department was sort of withdrawing from, uh, you know, really rewriting the way we think about mergers and, you know, dialing back its uh, merger enforcement. The states said, no, we don't agree um, and uh, brought cases and were and were, um, you know, very much pushing the idea that that new approach wasn't a good idea. And I will say the state attorneys general who supported this move were both Democrat and Republican. And they what they were not was Washington people. They were they were in touch with the interests of their states and were concerned about um, you know, concentration in the economy, how it's affecting their citizens. So, um, so the politics were different too. Uh, and that was, that was a major time. The, the second point was, um, litigation against Microsoft, the last major monopolization case that was brought in the United States by the government and the states and the federal government brought suit, but the states really, one of their efforts was to push the suit and make sure that the federal government didn't let it go and brought suit. Uh, so that was another interesting uh, time when state enforcement was quite important. Today, we've got a bunch of attorneys general who've opened uh, investigation into Facebook and I believe Google as well. What do you think the prospects are, you know, for for them to lead the way on big tech? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Here's my first reaction is that it's a heavy lift. Taking on these cases is is a big deal. These are very well resourced companies that understand their business in a way that government lawyers don't and have to learn about. Um, it is important to have there's not only safety in numbers but money in numbers. So it does give the states resources people and budget. These are these are going to be tough cases. And one of the things that's true when you have 48 states, 49, depending on how you count, it, it's a challenge just to coordinate among those offices and what may be different views from different offices. So you sort of have to keep that coalition together. Nobody really has authority. It's an interesting process. But I think they seem serious about it. Um, States are now litigating the Sprint T-Mobile merger in a, in a very serious way. Um, and I think they're serious about these, um, these investigations. Serious or not, 
they're, they, they won't be easy and um, they'll require a lot of effort. Uh, but I, I think they're determined to go ahead with that regard to what the federal government does. And apparently now not without a lot of coordination with the federal government, which hmm. you know, has its downsides, actually. Mm-hmm. Is there an interplay, do you think, between what the states do, what the agencies do, how Congress looks at these issues? I mean, do they sort of spur one another along? Yes, they, 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 they can have that effect. I, I think sort of on the good side is um, I think to take on a case like this, you need general support. And this now seems to be bipartisan, uh, which is a very interesting aspect of it. Um, and going on at, at multiple levels, both uh, co- you know Congress and the federal enforcers and uh, the states. So um, I think, yes, they can spur them on. Um, there's always the worry in cases like this that one group settles on terms that are uh, maybe not what they should be, and that affects the ability of the others to go ahead. So we have yet to see exactly, or to test, um, really where the federal agencies are in terms of you know, moving these cases ahead. And I, I frankly don't know. I think we're going to we'll find out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so there are challenges even in that. But way, way better to have all of these groups involved because it does build a certain sense of consensus that something ought to be done. Mm-hmm. Just turning back to overall reform and, and the prospect of, of Congress stepping in and, and uh, taking action to sort of set things right and, and, and turn the agencies and the courts back uh, maybe to, to what what Congress's original tension was around the anti-monopoly laws. Um, yeah, I've been interested to read a little bit about some of the proposals in the 1970s, uh, one uh, called the Industrial Reorganization Act, and talk about a branding problem. I mean, that is you know, a really boring uh, They should have pulled the break them up act. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it's such a stronger proposal than we've seen so far. I mean, there are a number of bills that have been introduced by Amy Klobuchar, Cory Booker, and others uh, in Congress to, in various ways, reform merger policy or other aspects of antitrust. Uh, But the Industrial Reorganization Act, or the break up Act, as we've now renamed it from the 1970s, really went much further and, and sort of, in a way, removed the role of technocrats and, and economists from, from the process. So I, t- tell us a little bit about that. So th- this was not a modest bill, <laughs> as, mm-hmm. you, as you said. Um, and it would have um, and would have created new institutions. It, it would have reorganized sort of the top of our economy. Um, you know, it, if you were over a certain asset size, you would have to show why you you should stay that way and not and not be broken up. This bill was introduced, I think, in three separate Congresses. Mm-hmm. Uh, with Senator Phil Hart, who was um, chairman of, uh, I guess, was the antitrust subcommittee of the Judiciary Committee um, from Michigan, very powerful um, and thoughtful senator. Uh, and you know, I, I, I'm not quite sure politically that he ever thought these bills would get passed. I'm not sure Congress was any more ready to restructure, um, you know, large corporations in 1970 than they are today. But it did um, form 
um, gave a forum for really thinking through, um, you know, what might be done and the reasons for or against it. Uh, now, in the end, you might say nothing came of it, but it was um, it was extremely ambitious and far-reaching. Senator Klobuchar's bill on mergers is maybe may less ambitious in its scope, but maybe more achievable. So we'll mm -hmm. have to see if anything happened. Didn't pass the last Congress. Hard to say it's going to pass this one. But. What I thought was interesting about this legislation from the, from the 70s is uh, that it that it for it, it basically said if you are a, a company with monopoly power if you're very large and you have a substantial and long lasting uh, you know share of a market that that's problematic and it removes the need to show that you somehow engaged in anti-competitive behavior which is a complicated process to show and said there is a public interest in not having markets monopolized by these big companies and that is you know sort of I, I found quite appealing in the sense that it you know it dealt with with companies at the very you know very powerful companies just sort of the top tier of of companies and recognized that that bigness can be problematic in and of itself and that sort of market power uh, and and removed the need to go through a very complicated process in terms of trying to show anti-competitive behavior and really got straight to the to the issue I think in some ways. Yes. So this was the push for what was called no-fault monopolization. Uh, interesting thing, when you talk about the technocrats, a lot of the sort of the, co the important commentators of the day, you know, one economist who later got a Nobel uh, award, actually, were in favor of this uh, because it was a straight case that monopoly wasn't good economically. On straight economic grounds, forget the political issues. And they did favor that sort of approach. I think we, I think we're, we're ready to reconsider that. Um, and some people are, you know, dusting this off and saying, yeah, um, this this might be a useful thing to talk about, not just mergers, which is how firms grow, but the position of firms as as monopolies. One of the difficulties of transposing that to today's economy is. The concern then was for what was called durable monopoly, just as you said, long-lasting monopolies. And I think today's today's concern about the big tech companies um, is a different sort of monopoly, and some not even monopolies. So Apple's not a monopoly. Um, so it's it's an even more complicated issue. But the core of not needing to say, oh, you did X bad thing. Don't do X bad thing, but saying, you know, there's something about the structure of the market and the incentives that if we change that, you wouldn't do X bad thing or Y. And um, we'd have more control over um, large economic actors. Mm hmm. Are you finding as a law professor that um, law students that are coming in now have more knowledge or interest in antitrust? I'm curious if the, you know, the growing sort of public interest in this area of law ha and policy has changed the mix of law students. I do find law students who are really interested in the area, you know, for lots of different reasons, maybe. It's, it's hard for me to say. I, I, I always feel that Interest increases when they go to work in the summer for a law firm 
and find that the law firm has antitrust issues they've got to deal with. And then mm -hmm. they say, maybe we're going to learn something about that. Um, so uh, a factoid is that um, I offer a seminar this semester and seminar sizes are limited. And it's the first time I can remember maybe ever, but certainly in a long time, that my advanced antitrust seminar was oversubscribed. It wasn't just me. I'd like to think, oh, they love me. Uh, but uh, one of my colleagues also had that. I think there is, a, you know, a general upswing for various reasons. It may be just because what's on the front page and the kinds of um, companies that that they see and deal with. You know, they all, everyone uses Amazon. Everyone uses Google. Um, you know, um, and unfortunately, apparently, everyone uses Facebook. So, um you know, it, this is not something that's esoteric or removed from people's lives. It is particularly for the students we see an integral part of their lives. And they're, you know, they're concerned about it. Well, that seems promising. Um, yes. I, <laughs> <laughs> I have to have students to teach, you know, it's much more fun that way. But Right. <laughs> and they're going to go out and I think, you know, some will be involved in the area for sure. Uh-huh. Well, I really appreciate this conversation. It's it's been uh, great to talk with you a little bit about your work and uh, and to help us understand a little bit more about how this area of policy works. Um, I wanted to close just by asking if you had a reading or watching re recommendation. Who has time to read anything when there's so much on so much competition uh, <laughs> in in uh, television entertainment programming until we all just have. Netflix and uh, Amazon. Well, that's that's for a future one. So um, I try. Here's the series that I really love. It has nothing to do. There are lots of blogs on competition. There are lots of interesting blogs, uh, lots of things to read and so forth and um, on competition law for a TV program. So I don't know if you know Stissel. No. I'll give a plug to Netflix. Not that they need it. Um, it's a show about Orthodox Jews in Jerusalem and how they live. Mm -hmm. and it's a very human interest, int to me, interesting show. And the people who star in it have become sort of, you know, minor or major um, uh, in important actors and its in, in these roles. So it's a it's a great human interest and series, and it also gives you an insight into a different culture that many of us don't really know how it operates. So Stissel it is, S-H-T-I-S-L. Stissel, great. And and it's a drama, not a documentary, right? It's not a documentary. It's, it's a, you know, it's a drama series um, and a very, very human series. Excellent. I'll have to check it out. Um, we will put that in the show notes uh, on the on the on our website for uh, for this episode, and we will also put links to uh, several of your articles uh, on that, so people can read more uh, about the antitrust democracy deficit and other work that you've done. Harry, first, thank you so much for uh, being on our podcast. Great. It was, it was a lot of fun. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Building Local Power. You can find links to what we discussed today by going to our website, ilsr.org, and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ilsr.org. And while you're there, you can sign up for one of our newsletters or click the donate button to support our work. If you like this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it. 
on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This show is edited by Lisa Gonzalez and produced by Lisa and Zach Freed. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunction Al. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Stacey Mitchell. We'll see you again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power. Thank you.